everybody, welcome to another episode of Poetry Says. My name's Alice, and in today's chat, I get to talk with Michael Aiken. Michael's the author of three collections of poetry so far A Vicious Example, which came out in 2014 and was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Kenneth Lesser Prize and the Dame Mary Gilmore Prize. And in 2018, he put out Satan Repentant as part of an ABR fellowship, followed by The Little Book of Sunlight and Maggots in 2019. And both of those two were out from UWAP. But this chat with Michael was more focused on his latest project, which is a creative space in Sydney called Garden Lounge. And I was really excited to be introduced to Michael and get to ask him about this because in my dreams, that is just exactly the kind of place that I would like to be running. If I had unlimited time and money, that is exactly what I would do. And it's really exciting to hear about why he created the space and the role that it's playing up in Sydney as kind of a hub of all different kinds of creativity, not just poetry, reading and writing, but also music and other things. So we talk a bit about that idea of the delineation between art forms and how important that is. We talk about how once you start to work on one project that can feed into something else and things tend to sort of snowball and as you end up with less time, somehow you end up doing more. But also there is an important point where you need to ease off before you push yourself too hard. And then we get into a bigger conversation about what it means to be running a creative institution, a space where people can get up in front of a mic and share their work, which leads to a bigger conversation on gatekeeping, inclusivity, diversity, why it matters, and the blockers to a truly diverse creative community. Towards the end, we go into a bit of advice to newer poets and the always important reminder to let go of the idea of should, what we should be doing. I really hope you get something out of this chat with Michael, and I hope that if you're in Sydney, you get a chance to head along to Garden Lounge at some point in the near future. Thanks for listening. So we were introduced by a fellow poet who mentioned that you've started up this creative space up in Sydney. And it struck me when I heard that two things. One, what a wonderful enterprise to embark on, but two, what a challenging time to do it in. And I was having a little look through your Twitter stream from the last 12 months and realising that you had started it sort of right at the start of having lockdowns and things like that. So maybe instead of focusing on that, though, let's go, (laughs) let's talk about what is Garden Lounge Creative Space? Yeah, sure. So it's been quite a journey and and that question is one that um, customers and staff still ask me all the time. In short, it's a a bookshop that specialises in poetry, specifically New Australian poetry, Um, but we've always sold secondhand books as well and we're now growing in terms of new books. So we have um, a range of local authors that we do get from the publishers, but we focus on the local and we're starting to get more, I suppose, mainstream books as well. But we have a lot of books that are um, 
either self-published or very independently published so you can't easily get them elsewhere which is often just because I bump into people and hear about a really interesting book they've done and get it from them personally. But yeah, so I guess it's the specialist bookshop that focuses on new Australian poetry. We also have barista coffee and, and a licensed cafe, but the food side of things is, is very simple, but nice. And it's really just meant to be a space where people can come together. So we have a lot of live readings, a lot of live music, we have original art on the walls, have, um, video games and things like that on site as well. Um, really interested in creativity in any sort of way and using the space to promote and support and foster new and interesting independent and local art, really, without focusing too much on what it is that we sell. Sounds like such a great addition to what's happening up in Sydney. You're talking about fostering the local scene. Was that your primary mm-hmm motivation is owning a bookshop something you've always wanted to do or what was the impetus I I often thought that I'd like the idea of having a venue I mean I'm, I'm a musician as well and I know lots of musicians and a lot of us around my age have children now as well so I always really like the idea of having an all ages space where you don't get your head blown off by the noise um but you can still get a drink and where there would also be other artwork but I didn't particularly intend to pursue it seriously. It was more um, out of necessity. I mean, I I had a really, I guess, severe depression and anxiety and it kind of culminated in um, about as close as I think I could get to a nervous breakdown. And at that time left my job of 10 years um, in sort of corporate communications and I was fortunate enough to get long service leave. So while I was trying to recover and, and just really find ways to function, I I worked out that I could afford to start a little pop-up shop for seven weeks I'd priced it out to. And I was actually originally selling rescued furniture and bonsai trees that I was making. Um, and it was only once I realised that I had the shop and was about to open it that it struck me that I had a new book out and my good friend Gareth Jenkins had his first book coming out. and there was no poetry shop in Sydney. So I very quickly started stocking everyone's books that I knew, contacting publishers that I knew and things like that. And it grew really rapidly. We we were doing shows every Saturday night, like live poetry and music. And so that was from about late June until the end of 2019, June 2019 till December 2019. And through that period, unfortunately, um, my partner of 18 years and I um, split up as well. So then I had, again, of necessity to find a way to survive, really, not being living in a two-income household anymore. And the business had done so much better than we expected. I mean, I didn't start it to make money, but we actually sold, I think it was about in the first four months, sold about $3,000 worth just of new Australian poetry books, as well as holding, I did about 65 events in that time. I did a series of public talks as well as the live shows. So it had enough strength, I thought, enough potential to warrant moving into a large premises that has a coffee machine and a kitchen and a liquor licence with the view to then continuing to offer, a, you know, a really premier space for book launches and also for other live events. So we did an experimental and improvised live music show this Sunday just gone. Unfortunately, that means that I moved 
in December into this bigger space. And then of course in March, COVID hit. And so I did have a, I had a four day festival planned between me and another venue nearby. Had a poet from the US who was flying out, had poets from interstate flying and they all had to cancel their tickets. So the business has been impacted as has you know everyone in literature and elsewhere by COVID, but we're still here and we're still innovating, I suppose. God, you've just in, in describing that journey, you've mentioned three really huge, huge challenges, you know, yeah. professionally and personally. And I just, I really want to acknowledge that because that's a lot to go through for two and a bit years. That's, that's heaps. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, um, you know, I mean, I could go on the other, you know, um, close family members passed away and things like that. And, um, I also have four children, um, three under the age of 14 so or under the age of 15 I should say so a lot of challenges for me and for my former partner but you know I mean everyone has challenges at least I've been able to, to keep the wheels on yeah I mean I said just before it sounds like a really great addition to the Sydney scene but I'm saying that as somebody who doesn't really know Sydney particularly well and definitely not what it is at the moment as we are going into 2021. Mm. So how do you see what you're doing slotting in and what role is it playing, do you think? So I guess let's see it, um, as I mentioned earlier, partly as somewhere that families can go as well because a lot of the poetry events in Sydney are in pubs and things like that and even if children might be committed, um, it's not necessarily very welcoming for them. So that, that's one thing is that I, I see it as, yeah, allowing not just children and younger people but also their families to be able to participate in live shows, whether it's live music or poetry or other things, without feeling out of place or without being restricted. I also see it as being very much of the nexus of different art forms. So I'm really interested in video games, for example, as, as an art form. I'm working with a friend of mine who builds custom gaming machines in arcade cabinets um, on the idea of commissioning some local game designers to give us, or not give, but um, lease games to us that we can put in the shop exclusively for a certain amount of time. I also stock things like a whole range of graphic, growing range of graphic novels and comics that have been completely um, independently produced. So the artists are writing, drawing, and printing them and distributing them themselves. So again, it's something that you're probably not going to get elsewhere. In terms of poetry in particular, I think it's really interesting that it really struck me that Sydney, as far as I'm aware, has never had a poetry shop, never had a, a dedicated poetry space, which, I, as I've said before, I think is real failing for an international city. You know, there's some really great publishers in Sydney and, and very close by to where we are, like, um, subbed in, for example, on Vagabond. Um, Vagabond, who published um, Peter Boyle's Involving the Wings of a Great Darkness, for example, last year, which just won the Kenneth Slosser Prize for poetry. But there's, I mean, the whole range of amazing writers that those two publishers alone are doing. Um, there's also Pitt Street Poets up in Newcastle. We've got Hunter and Watman. There's Giramondo out at Western Sydney. So there's really a lot of really high quality and really adventurous poetry being published in and around Sydney. So not have a, a dedicated poetry venue 
is really surprising. And I think a lot of people just thought it couldn't be done because of how high the rents are. Um, and that is a challenge. I would say though that people also assume that the only people who are going to buy poetry already know it exists. Whereas I've found that just by putting it out the front where people can find it without knowing it's there, I've sold a lot of poetry to people who didn't know there was any new Australian poetry this century, you know, let alone 12 books a year or more. That's wonderful. I love the idea of that interaction, somebody just walking past, glancing down at a pile of books and going, oh, is this this new Australian poetry? What a concept. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right in terms of there was that sense. I mean, obviously there is there is Sappho in Glebe, which is yeah. wonderful. Um, and next door to that, you've got Glee Books as well. And you can you can get poetry there, no problem. You can go to Kinokunia and you can get a whole bunch of poetry there. But in terms of having a dedicated bookshop where you can only buy poetry, I mean, I know that here in Melbourne we are really missing collected works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, which was, it was more than a bookshop. It was sort of like a part shrine, part mm-hmm. uh, just like a living thing, you know, and, and the poet who introduced us contacted me moving from Sydney to Melbourne and said, I heard that there's this poetry-only bookshop down there and I had to say, well, there used to be. <laughs> but, yeah, that was it was just a rent issue, just um, ended that particular chapter. But hopefully there'll be something new that comes along to fill its space. I really did want to ask you about what you were just touching on there in terms of the intersection between mm-hmm. forms. So in researching your work, I know that, as you've mentioned, you're a musician. You've said you're um, interested in computer games as well. I guess, first of all, I'm wondering about the delineation between those forms and the switching that yep. you might need to do in terms of writing a piece of music turning to write poetry, how blended is that for you? Um, I change my, my views on this kind of every year, I suppose, but ultimately I guess I feel that differentiation between art forms is really a thing for the consumer rather than for the artists. You know, most artists, if you scratch the surface with them, you'll find that they at least have a strong interest in a form other than the one that they're known for or that they will identify with. And usually they're practising in multiple forms. And um, I think that's very natural because, um, you know, art is by its nature creative and exploratory and there's no real reason to, you know, stay within those lines, whatever they might be. I mean, I think it was Duchamp who said that um, if if he was remembered at all, and this was before his visual art career took off, but he was quoted as saying that if he was remembered at all, it would be as a minor poet. And then, um, you know, if you look more recently, I think a really good example is um, Mez Breeze, for example, who's an Australian poet who I think is now based in Melbourne, actually, who is also a game designer and and wrote an award-winning game or or developed an award-winning game. And that game is itself full of text that she has written. And then her poetry collection is written in pseudo-code. And if you have, if you don't have any understanding of computer code, you can still enjoy her work. But if you have some understanding of code, which I have a little bit, then 
there are added layers to it. So yeah, I think, um, you know, ever since, was it Plato, you know, who used to just use the word poesis to just mean creation in words, really. Yeah, to me, it's all very much one big thing. And even beyond what people generally refer to as art, and I'm also very interested interested in design and even what might be called craft. I mean, I think the biggest differentiator between art and craft seems to be that if something has some kind of utility, it's no longer art, it becomes a craft. I like the idea of video game design being a craft. That's, yeah. that's an interesting thought. I'm just thinking as you're describing all that, that really working in different forms, there's probably a, a myth out there that if you're not focused wholly on one thing, you're not giving enough attention to it. But mm. I don't know if, if you would agree with this, but I've definitely found in my own life that the more I'm doing, the more I can do in terms of creativity. And this, this last 12 months, once one thing fell apart, everything else started to slow down until everything came to a grinding halt. <laughs> that yeah, was right. my experience. <laughs> yeah, I certainly, I think, you know, I mean, what you just said reminds me a bit of how people at work is to say, uh, if you want something done, ask a busy person to do it. And I was known for being extremely busy until, as I said, I overloaded myself and kind of broke for a while. But I think that also, I think our minds don't have those those barriers or those artificial delineations between art forms either. And so sometimes pursuing something within what appears to be a different art form to what you're working on can actually be really valuable for teasing out what your creativity is trying to do or trying to explore. I mean, I've, I've you know, dabbled in painting and drawing and things like that, and I'd love to be really good at visual art but I know it would take too much effort <laughs> um, for me to be prepared to do it but doing those explorations has helped me I think in terms of understanding other creative practice the same as you know how literary theory really is part of art theory and, and things like surrealism you know started with writers but then then immediately influenced painters as well and again I, I think that artists don't necessarily care about those boundaries it's interesting what you say though about if you're trying to do too many things then you don't do anything properly perhaps to paraphrase what you said I have been confronting myself with that a bit recently particularly because moving out of a, a house into a small apartment with my children I'm confronted by the actual lack of space or the amount of junk would be another way to put it or the amount of stuff that I have and I've got these unfinished canvases, for example, and it's really pushing me along to say, well, you know, which of these things do I really want to focus on? Reminds me quite a bit, actually, um, funnily enough, of a poem by Pio, the St Kilda poet, who um, he had a book out recently called Heidi, which is the third in his trilogy of, of epic verse novels, which we actually did a book club for, or we're doing a book club for here at Garden Lounge. I say we're doing because... It's a huge book, it's about 500 pages long, so we're doing it over four separate sessions and we've done the first two. And his work really explodes in all directions. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but, um, I mean, he's very experimental, but he's also very well read and very interested in mathematics. And that book in particular has a lot of random 
or it appears to be random facts in it, jumps all over the place, but it's also telling a story, starting with the Big Bang, basically, and then honing into um, colonial Melbourne. And in the book club, we were talking about, you know, what is this, where is it going, why does it keep jumping around, what could this all mean? And generally, we found it helpful in contextualising and, you know, it stimulates the reader to have their own ideas and bring their own experiences into the story they're reading. But then there's one poem in there that is called The Widowmaker and it's a much more um, concrete poem as in, you know, like uses the, the layout of the text on the page to create a picture and it's kind of this explosion or this vortex of, of lines all at different angles so you can't read it unless you turn the page or turn your head and they're all disconnected from each other generally in terms of grammar and subject and things like that. And my interpretation of that poem, at least particularly with the title Widowmaker, was that that poem seemed to be saying this is the point where it's too much. This is the point where trying to go in too many directions at once is unhealthy. That point at which it becomes so broken and so fragmented that you can't make sense of it. So, yeah, I do, I do think there's that, that singularity point, if you like, where you can tip over the edge. But as you kind of alluded to before, it, it also seems to be that you accelerate as you get towards that. You get better at doing more with less. So maybe that's the real challenge is riding that and knowing when to um, hold steady and when to ease off. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of there's a sweet spot there. Mm. Um, I would really love to be part of that Heidi book club because yeah. Pio's work is impenetrable and scary to me. So I really would love some help. Um, <laughs> uh, so what has your, you mentioned visual arts and obviously you have been probably primarily focused on keeping the garden lounge running over the last 12 months, but in terms of reading and writing, yeah. I'm just interested to ask people what the last 12 months has looked like, because as I sort of said before, for me, it's been very, very, very quiet. Yeah, so um, it was interesting for me. I actually had the honour of, of reading at Sappho, um, which you mentioned earlier, which, you know, it's probably the premier poetry reading event in Sydney, it's certainly been around for a very long time and currently curated by Toby Fitch. And I, I felt um, terrible that he offered myself and Gareth Jenkins, who I mentioned earlier, to come and read in November in 2019. And I then offered Gareth the opportunity to read at my shop on that same date. And he said, no, I can't do that. We're reading at Sappho. And he said, you can't do a show that night either. And then I promptly forgot again and booked someone else in to do an event at my shop that night. So I had to cancel what was a really great opportunity. But Toby very graciously let, let me come back in March 2020, which turned out to be the last Sappho reading before um, the lockdown, really. So I, I was lucky that I had that reading. Um, you know, it was kind of high point to go into hibernation on. And then I also, at the same time that I was trying to get to grips with what Garden Lounge now is, having moved into a much bigger space and with staff and things like that, and trying to keep the lights on and keep it active, I did a whole lot of shows when no one was allowed to come in. I started just performing like both live on 
on Facebook or YouTube, but also the whole shop front is water sealing glass and the doors open up like bifolds onto King Street. So people couldn't come in, but they could still wander past and hear me. So I did quite a few late nights, either standing here singing songs for hours or um, I did a few long readings from um, my verse novel that came out in 2018, which is, it's about 30,000 words long. And I, I said that I was going to read it every Thursday night until I'd read the entire thing. But I, I think I stopped after the first two or three books out of the five books in it. But yeah, I've, I've done a lot of performing, not so much writing though a bit. There was, as you know, is often noted, it's been a bit forgotten, but there were the bushfires at the start of 2020 as well, end of 2019. And a lot of people were asking writers to respond to that. So I wrote some stuff in response to that that was particularly personal because my father was a rural bush firefighter in my youth. And I'm, I keep trying to write a new verse novel and I'm struggling with that very much. And I'm still working on a very long novel. So I've been writing, but not much has been finished. Yeah, it doesn't quite feel like the time to finish things. It's like, no, yeah. no, it's certainly very hard to know which direction to go in, I think. Yeah, I really resonate with that. Um, I'm thinking about the last year as well. You mentioned the bushfires. Obviously, there's been lockdowns, there's been restrictions. I feel like it's also important to acknowledge that there's been a big conversation in Australian poetry over the last year in various forms around gatekeeping and structures, mm. institutions. And I thought it would be interesting to ask you about that because you are now running, you're running a space yep. and through that you have this, this opportunity to kind of, I guess, you know, in my own work as a producer, I ran a reading down here in Melbourne for a while. I was really acutely aware of my role as saying this person gets in front of a mic and this person doesn't until next month or doesn't at all, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although it was usually it was the opposite. Usually it was like, please, can you come? Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just wonder how you think about that in terms of like how that conversation has changed perspectives for you, if, if it has at all, and and how you see your role in that. Yeah, it's funny it hasn't changed my perspective on on what I do that much but it has opened my eyes to how others might perceive me for example I I issued a statement at one point trying to clarify that although the range of performers that we've had so far at Garden Lounge didn't necessarily reflect the diversity of the community that wasn't how I wanted things to continue and very explicitly said that um, I'm open to anyone performing here and would really encourage people to contact me. One person who responded to that, you know, supportively, like encouraging me for having explicitly said that, at the same time, because this statement was said as Garden Lounge, not as me personally, but one of the responses I got said something like, I, I hope your board can adopt some good principles or whatever, like basically just saying, you know, I hope that you've got a good organisation running this. And I just thought it, it was quite shocking in a, in a way 
that people seem to assume that I've got funding or I've got um, a team. I mean, I've got a barista who works a couple of hours a week, but I've got a, a couple of people who come in. Yeah, I've got one barista who works for two and a half shifts a week um, to help me out because I'm not a great barista myself. Uh, but other than that, it's just been me and friends, a couple of good friends who've really jumped in and helped a lot, but really just me doing everything. And it was a little bit daunting to think that because Garden Lounge got quite a strong name pretty quickly with some people at least, that there does really seem to be a presumption that I've got some sort of government funding or other um, philanthropy behind me um, and that, you know, we've got someone running our social media and we've got someone running our events and we've got someone running the kitchen and all that sort of thing when actually it's just me doing all of it. So, yeah, though those few times I've participated in public conversations, it, it did dawn on me that, people really don't know what other people are doing and nor should they really. I mean, I've only been around for a year and a half and I feel like I go on about it too much, but actually most people don't know. But getting back to your question about gatekeeping and the conversation in Australia, I think that it's very much in its infancy really. I think that so far what it's shown me is that there's a huge gap as I guess there is in other spheres of society and in other parts of the world, but there's a, a real gulf between people who see themselves as being different from each other or who are part of different groups or, um, or think that they will be perceived as different or however you like to put it. But basically, I think that a lot of people feel like no one gives them any time and a lot of other people feel like they don't know what they can do and there doesn't really even seem to be much of a conversation yet that, that's a real conversation. But I think a lot of people want to see that change. One thing that did really strike me as a curator is, as I say, I, I issued a couple of calls for performers and I had a few people contact me who I hadn't met before and a few people start coming in more often who hadn't been here before. But, um, you know, I'm middle-aged, middle-class, white, cis-het guy and... Most of my performers are some variation on that. Um, our gender balance is pretty um, even, or probably a few more women than men have, have read. But, yeah, still not very diverse, really. And I think that part of that is because those people from that more kind of, what's the word? I hate to use words like mainstream or whatever, but from the, the white middle class part of the community, seem to be much more comfortable to just put their hand up and step forward. I haven't had many people approach me who don't fit into that little pigeonhole and I don't blame them. I don't think that it, it's their fault. Um, but I think that it, that's part of that whole issue of not really having a, a dialogue happening yet um, is that, yeah, we really need to show that we really do want everyone to be part of the community and part of the literary community and that and not out of a um an altruistic reason either this is one of the things that i used to argue with people at my job a lot is that the idea of, of increasing diversity isn't isn't about giving people a fair go or or being nice to people it's that we miss out we miss out on so many different perspectives and different 
artists and artworks if we don't hear from everyone. But I think that, yeah, it's going to take a long time for Garden Lounge and for the community generally to really make people who've spent, you know, probably their whole lives feeling marginalised to start feeling like people will actually listen to them and listen to them when they want to say something other than just talk about, you know, what they don't like about the world or, or what their particular experience is based on their demographic. You know, listen to them as artists on anything they want to talk about. Yeah, I resonate with so much of that. It, just as a as an event producer and also as a, the producer of this podcast, it's been really fascinating to be on the um, other end of the email and just notice the skew of people who request to come on. Mm. Um, <laughs> no prizes for guessing who those people are, and yeah, it's yeah. and and the people who have declined, it's often people that like yeah, I feel would have a point of view that we don't hear from very often that I would that yeah. I would love to represent, but uh, you know, it's it's not always a great it's not always a great time. It doesn't always feel welcoming, and yeah, it's you know. I definitely count myself amongst, weirdly, amongst uh, the a gatekeeping group. Um, yeah. And I guess it's just something, you know, if it's if it's a case of awareness before action, then we're very much in, as you say, the infancy of awareness of that, which is in and of itself a problem, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. And they're real. I mean, I think a big part of the problem is there really is still a lot of tokenism. I mean, that is most of what's behind the active attempts at diversification that I see, um, certainly from public organisations and things like that, there's a sense of, oh, we're supposed to do this, so we will, or it makes us look more inclusive. There's not, as I say, that genuine understanding that it actually benefits everyone to have more diverse, or to have access to more diverse artists or perspectives in any field. Um, it, I often think about how I, you know, I did a postgraduate business degree of all things, um, which I hated most of. And I often think about how um, people in the business world especially love to quote Darwinian theories, things like, you know, survival of the fittest, and this idea that, you know, anyone who can't cope or anyone who doesn't get ahead, it's, it's their own fault for not being strong enough. And, you know, economists of certain bent will use that, um, all sorts of business people will, and people outside of business too. But another principle from biology that is far more relevant, I think, is diversity. Like diversity in biology, diversity in financial markets, diversity in a business or in an economy, diversity in all sorts of spheres is strength. You know, I mean, it it reduces the likelihood of disease, it, it increases the ability of an ecosystem to survive and flourish. And in um, fields of thought, it, it's essential to getting new ideas, you know, and therefore breakthroughs. So I really think that's one of the issues at the moment is that our community doesn't seem, or our leaders don't seem to stop and see that we all need diversity and the marginalisation that occurs is based on artifice. You know, it's based on 
on a trumped up idea that some people are different to others for whatever thing you want to pick out about how someone looks or sounds or moves or whatever. And those could shift at any time. So it's, it's one thing to try and eradicate a particular type, type of bigotry, but that's not really good enough if it just gets replaced by another one over time. I think there really needs to be that shift to understanding that, that um, all people have valuable things to contribute if only what they have to offer can be connected with the part of the community um, that will benefit from it. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like such an obvious principle, but apparently not quite part of the normal structure of things yet. Mm. Um, I'm thinking as you're talking about, you know, if there was somebody listening to this who is just starting out writing poetry, learning about what it is to be a poet in Sydney or what it is to be a poet anywhere in Australia, really, as somebody who's you've won awards, you've had the ABR Fellowship, you've published three books. What are some of the things that you would share with them as like, here are some things to, to keep in mind? I know for myself I would say take it much slower than you think you need to because <laughs> yeah. I, I was very, I was very, I was very like I felt like I was late all the time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think um, one thing that's really important for everyone, and I'm finding this myself a lot at the moment, I, amongst the, all the other dramas I mentioned to you earlier that I've gone through, I was also recently diagnosed with um, adult ADHD, which I've had my whole life, but only now understand that I have. And one of the things that's helping me with is realising that it's really dangerous to tell yourself what you should be doing or should have done because you really set yourself up feeling like you fail and you're the only one creating that that expectation so really shaking off those shoulds in any field is important and I think in writing especially it reminds me in the ABR they often have a, a one-page interview with an author and one of the questions they ask them is what stops you writing and I'm sure it was Charlotte Wood who said fear stops her writing that was always said one word whereas lots of other people would say you know family commitments, whatever, blah, 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 she just said fear. And that really resonated with me, although I'd probably say anxiety rather than fear. But that worrying about whether you're good enough or what you should or shouldn't be doing is something that if you experience it, you've really got to try and either put it in a box or just accept that it's there but don't let it control you or find some way of working through it it can be really debilitating and it, it's just so counterproductive. It doesn't serve anyone, either you or anyone else. But more broadly, what I'd say for people who might be starting out, there's some really great things happening now. And I think that literature and especially poetry is really more vital and more alive, especially in this country, than it has been ever in my lifetime, I think. So if I look back to when... You know, around when I was at university at the start of this century, for example, people who were working at Glee Books were telling me that they didn't expect to see that bookshop survive till the end of the year. And that was hand in hand with other people saying the internet was destroying journals and was destroying publishing and was destroying the quality of output and things like that. And yet 
here we are now 20 years later and not only is clay book still there and we also now have better red than dead and as you said we've still got sappho and now got kinakunya in sydney so we do have quite a few good bookshops there's others i've mentioned as well for the east that do sell poetry as well as other you know supposedly difficult books um so that side of things is still, still strong sydney has got more places to read and to go and hear people read i think than before though what probably shocks a lot of older people especially who are used to the, the 90s sydney is that really you need to keep going further west because the center of sydney is now really out of Parramatta. so places like um at bankstown poetry slam you know that place is known internationally i think slam poets from the us if they came here would want to read at bankstown rather than reading somewhere in the inner city but we also have more print journals now than we had before and we have more small high quality publishers than we had before I and mean, i think all the publishers i mentioned earlier didn't exist back then cordite did but has gone from strength to strength and now publishes books as well we've got rabbit down in melbourne as well abr is going stronger and stronger so there's really there's a lot of avenues for publishing and there's a lot of high quality journals and editors and and publishers what i would say is there's also a lot of writers now which is not a bad thing it's a reflection of a more literary a literate community but it can feel like the goalposts keep shifting but i think that generally things are a lot brighter now than they were 20 years ago and the barriers to physically producing books are much lower now than they used to be. A lot of those people that are publishing books now do print on demand, things like that. And even, you know, like University of Western Australia published my last two books. If we, we'd done that 20 years ago even, it probably would have been prohibitively expensive because they would have had to ship or courier proofs to me for me to mark up and send back. So even just being able to do that by PDF and email really changes the game for a lot of um producers so yeah i think that there's a lot to be excited about it, it's never going to be easy it's it doesn't matter what what you're wanting i think it's always going to feel challenging because there's always other people wanting to do it too but i think there's a place for everyone and you just have to persevere and love your own work you know be your own best fan yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was just thinking in terms of the goalpost shifting, that sense of the, the landscape changes every six to 12 months or whatever. Um, yeah. I think that, that that probably does feel disorienting. Um, it can feel disorienting for me as well. Um, mm. But at the same time, I, I very vividly remember the sense when I first started out writing in about 2007, that there were like three or four journals that I had to get into. And if I couldn't get into them, I was screwed. Like <laughs> That was <Yeah>. it. <laughs> so like, yeah, it, there is this sense that the landscape has diversified and, and is stronger for that. And there is, Absolutely. yeah, if there's, if there's not a place for everyone just yet, there are, there are more and more places for more and more people. Yeah. Be your own best fan is really good advice. It's really good advice. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, yeah. I think that I think in any art form, if you're a writer or a painter or whatever, you do it because you have to do it because you feel compulsion. And that's enough reason to do it. 
and no one's going to love everything that you do, not not even yourself necessarily, but you'll know you did everything because you had to. And it's like we were talking before about exploring different avenues. It's all just part of the journey, I suppose. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, you know, why keep doing it? Because obviously there's there's no money in it mm. and I really love one of the bios you've written. You've listed all the various jobs that you've had, everything from uh, census collector, labourer, <laughs> diamond drilling, chicken <laughs> yeah. catcher. Like, yeah, you're, you're doing all this stuff to support the work of being an artist. So, yeah, it's kind of like it is a compulsion. I think it has to be. Otherwise, you would just comfortably, I mean, you could comfortably stay in the corporate job, I guess. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I very early on felt like you can either try really hard to, to be a commercially successful artist, which, which means really trying to shape your art to, to follow trends um, and possibly still fail. Or you can, as you say, get whatever jobs to support what you're doing and not try and rely on your art to pay the bills. And that at least gives you the freedom to do whatever you want with your art. And I took that latter path um, partly because I wanted to do weirder stuff anyway that was unlikely to make money. But also one of the few things I do feel certain of in, in various sort of theory debates is the idea of like the committed artist, politically committed. In my view, you, you can't have art that has any commitment connection to the body politic if you don't have any experience as a member of that community. And I think that working those kind of jobs, for me, it, certainly it, it's helped keep me connected to, you know, the background that my parents are from and the reality of, of um, most people, I hesitate to say, but, you know, most workers that I might have been otherwise, I suppose. And it's given me a lot of material. I mean, I my first book is all written while I was working as a security guard, you know, for 10 years, standing around in the street all night. Um, and it fits that mode. It's very observational, very descriptive. But, yeah, it is it is that compulsion to keep writing anyway. But if you think about any of the artists that you admire who are really successful, I think you'd find the vast majority if you were to ask them or even if you ask yourself, if they weren't successful, would they still be doing it? I think the answer is yes for the vast majority, you know. They'd just be off somewhere unknown and, and filling pages and pages or singing to 20 people or whatever. Some of them are just fortunate enough to have made a living off it or become very comfortable off it. But yeah, I love that that attitude has driven you to actually create a space where other people are going to be able to come and and do all kinds of things, all kinds of performance. Like I can't wait to see what the the next 12 months and two years unfolds into. Where should people come to find you? So we're on South King Street in Newtown. So a lot of people don't realise that King Street doesn't start at Newtown Station. Newtown Station is actually halfway along King Street. So if you come out of Newtown Station, you turn left and go down the south end, which the locals refer to as the Parisian end, 
not far from the Union Hotel and, and the Mosh Pit, which is a 90s-themed live music venue, and Parliament on King, which is another licensed cafe bookshop that does live music, poetry and comedy. So we've got a nice little community around here of different venues doing things different nights of the week. And where the shop with, I don't know, the arcade machine and the turquoise walls is probably the easiest way to spot it. And the big wall of Australian poetry, um, which is almost reaching the ceiling now. Yeah, I can see it towering behind you there. <laughs> it's very exciting. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait to come and see you.